Tenekoto, Namai, Hairamai. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your hosts. I'm Marianne. Thanks so much for joining me today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours. Sit back, relax, let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Kia ora. welcome everyone. If you're returning, thanks Eats for coming back to listen to another episode. If you are a new listener, thank you so much for joining us all today. It's great to have you all here with us. Strange Encounters Down Under, that's not as naughty as the title might suggest. In this episode, we're hopping across the ditch, as we say here in New Zealand, to visit with our Aussie, as us Kiwis call them, or our Australian neighbours. We're going to look at a few Aussie myths and legends and talk a wee bit about that with my guest. And then the rest of this episode is going to be focused on my guest's 30-odd years working in the paranormal and, in particular, UFO-related fields of study. Are you willing to walk with us into this part of the Shadowlands and see where this journey will take us? Then let's begin. Cheryl's had a lifelong interest in the paranormal and began actively studying the paranormal in 1980 with her interest in near-death experiences. Soon after, she joined the International Association for Near-Death Studies and in 1995 hosted Dr Ken Ring on tour in Australia, presenting research for his future book, Mind Sight, Near-Death and Out-of-Body Experiences in the Blind. In 1988, Shiel's other interest in extraterrestrial life led her to join the Brisbane-based association UFO Research Queensland, and in 1992, Shiel, with her late husband, Dr Martin Gottschall, established the first Close Encounter support group in Brisbane. Shiel's current research bridges the afterlife and UFO subjects, and in 2012, she established the monthly Afterlife Discussions Group. She continues to find links between close encounters with non-human intelligences and the afterlife, and believes that the two great mysteries of our time are we alone in the universe and what happens when we die may be more deeply connected than we realize. Cheryl has had many paranormal experiences herself including an NDE, out-of-body experience, UFO sightings and a close encounter with non-human intelligences, poltergeist activity, automatic writing and other unexplained phenomena all of which propel her to continue her quest to understand what it means to be human. 
She speaks regularly about the UFO phenomenon and the afterlife at public meetings, conferences, community groups, schools and library groups and has given hundreds of media interviews. She writes for UFO and New Age magazines and worked as a clinical hypnotherapist. She was a regular guest on the weekly Spooky Action radio show in 2018 and co-hosted the Strange Encounters radio show in 2019 to 2020. She's currently the host of the YouTube Strange Encounters Down Under podcast. My guest, Cheryl Gottschall. Welcome, my guest, Cheryl Gottschall. It's really great to have you here with us today. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what got you interested in this whole general field. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Marianne. I'm delighted to talk to people about these subjects, uh, you know, living it, breathing it, thinking it, <laughs> like many people who uh, do podcasts and, you know, researchers, investigators, people of interest, yeah. I think I always had a tendency to be interested in things outside of the normal because when I was a kid I used to sit outside and look out at the stars and wonder if there were was life out there. And and I used to think, I wonder if there are people out there on planets looking at yeah. Earth thinking, I wonder if there's life on there, you know. So and I, that's quite common. I found that myself because I interview people too. And that's a very common trait for people to have to do that when they're children, which I had no clue until I started talking to people. When I was old enough to start earning my own income, I'd buy a magazine here in Australia, which was called Australasian Post, which is defunct now. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, and it was a great magazine. I think John Pinkney uh, used to write a lot in there, and he's a well-known, he's passed away now, but he's a well-known author of books on the paranormal. I used to read articles, and I was just you know, amazed at people's stories and it used to ignite my interest, you know, even more. But then that sort of died down as you, you know, you grow up and you go to work and buy a house and have family and all that. But in 1975, I got interested in around that time, between 75 and 80, I got interested in the afterlife. And it was about 75, I think, that Raymond Moody coined the term near-death experiences. And I was fascinated by those those stories. So I started looking into that and then Raymond Moody, oh, no, not Raymond Moody, oh, there were three people. I know Dr. Ken Ring was one of the co-founders of IANS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies. So I became a member of that. Mm. And uh, little did I know at the time later on in the 90s I'd be hosting Ken, as he was doing his Australian book tour. Uh, so we've, I used to get uh, the old audio tapes of conferences sent out to Australia from the IANS conferences and 
from there, I sort of developed an interest in God, basically. Everyone wants to some stage things, you know, ask, is this all there is? You know, what else? What is my purpose? And all those sorts of things. Mm. So I did a home Bible study course and that led me to, after three years, coming to the point that I think these descriptions of angelic visitations are more like close encounter experiences. And then from there, you know, I've been in UFO research now for 33 years. And since 2012, I've been running a monthly afterlife discussions group as well. So, yeah, and now I'm doing a podcast called Strange Encounters Down Under, which people can find on YouTube. But we talk about all sorts of things that you do too, Marianne. And I'm so pleased to connect with you, you know, with a like-minded person. Isn't it great? Yes. I've interviewed a number of people who have, like yourself, an interest in this area. Uh, I interviewed a wonderful gentleman in Australia. Can't think of his name offhand, but he studied the Yowie for years, years and years and years, and we had a great conversation. I've had uh, people that have studied other cryptids, people in the States with Bigfoot. It's a really, really interesting subject. Maybe we could talk a little bit about about that aspect at the moment and you could perhaps tell me some of the favorite stories that you've heard in your journey in this part of the Shadowlands. Yeah sure about the cryptids wow I have uh, a colleague here who was just speaking recently about this that he had an experience some years ago where he was outside near his swimming pool and uh, in the evening at a place called Grafton in New South Wales in Australia and he saw this living creature, which was shaped like a boomerang, but it was covered oh. in scales and it was flying towards him, uh, which was, and uh, I think he said it was something like, oh gosh, about one and a half to two metres across. It was huge. It was just, and, and he, I've never heard a story like that here in Australia ever. So that was really unusual. I haven't actually seen a Yowie myself. And frankly, I don't think I want to. I don't want to get that close. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, so they sound a little bit scary, yeah, to be honest. And, uh, I don't know whether you're talking about Dean Harrison or Ray Doherty here in Australia who are very interested in Yowies, but I've heard some of their reports and about Yowies, particularly around Brisbane. Ray has been looking at those. And during COVID when people weren't going out so much, reports were coming in closer to the city. I think he said one was actually about 16 kilometres southwest of Brisbane. Oh, interesting. Uh, coming in quite close. But wow. um, my understanding is that, you know, the ones that are sort of live on the periphery of civilization are a little bit more used to human beings. But as you go further into the bushland, that they can be quite aggressive because they're not used to humans, you know. So mm. there there are there are cases here, there are we've had Black Panthers in Queensland and that's quite historical in going back, oh, gosh, you know, tens and tens and tens of year, decades here in Australia. But in Queensland, there was one scene recently up around Cardwell in North Queensland. Right. And I have wondered, I mean, I have gone back and looked through Trove, which is where the National Archives are, are putting all, a lot of the old newspaper clippings, and there have been reports of circuses that were in Australia around the early 1900s where uh, the owners just left and let mm -hmm. the animals go. So I have wondered whether 
the Black Panthers had something to do with that. I'm not really sure. Right. But it is unusual that that they're actually often seen as a singular animal, mm, mm. which is really, really strange. So, yeah, we certainly have our fair share of cryptids, cryptid reports here in Australia. We've had Black Panther reports here in New Zealand as well, um, mainly down in the Canterbury region, which is in the South Island. Mm. But, you know, it does make you wonder because these reports are consistent in countries that mm, don't have yes, Indigenous yes. big cats. And, and obviously... Wherever they came from, they're um, they've adapted to the environment, so that's interesting. Mm. But you know, we have all sorts of strange creatures here. I mean, I, I just think uh, historically, when uh, people came out to Australia, for example, they saw the platypus, and they thought, <laughs> originally they thought it was a hoax yes, and joke yes. when they sent one back to England. You know, so but you know, to them, a platypus might have. <laughs> Yeah. seemed like a cryptid or the Tasmanian tiger might have seemed like wasn't you know a cryptid like you know looking at it it depends yeah. on how you look at these you know creatures the times you live in and, and what's culturally and uh, scientifically accepted doesn't it it, it is absolutely that's true uh, like I know here in New Zealand I did an episode in my first season I did a whole pile of New Zealand based uh, episodes and one was on the cryptids in New Zealand and and when we say cryptos, we're talking about cryptozoological animals that may perhaps not have been properly identified, not necessarily mm. animals that are legend, legendary or myth mythical. Like we had a, a a type of otter, and I can't remember the Maori name offhand. It's no longer around; it's extinct. But it was for that period of time, and it was sighted quite regularly when New Zealand was being colonised. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I think you're right there. I think some of them were never identified, and um, over time they've probably died off to become yes, quite rare yes. as well. Yeah. Do you know many of the Aboriginal legends of cryptids? Like the bunyip and the... Yeah, I'm aware of them. Um, yes, the bunyip is an interesting one. They, you know, living in waterholes and they were used, stories about them were used to scare the children to make sure they did the right thing and didn't go out at night and all those sorts of... <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, but there have been reports of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, when I've gone back through Trove and looked at the old newspaper articles, um yeah, there were certainly reports uh, in Brisbane, actually, and um, just east of Brisbane along the coast in an area called, we call the Redlands, and uh, bunyips were reported to be seen there. Now, whether that was accurate or not or whether it was, you know, um, because they were reported by uh, European settlers, right, not Aboriginal people, but um, uh, I just wonder whether the Aboriginal mythology had come into their right. thinking and maybe they misidentified something or maybe it actually was a bunyip that is now extinct or, or very rare and very rarely seen, yeah. Ken, for those listeners who, who aren't from Australia or New Zealand and don't haven't heard of a bunyip, can you please explain what a bunyip is supposed to be? Well, actually, I can talk about uh, one report that I dug out of the newspaper archives and, uh, of course, you know, Australians, when they hear of bunyips, they actually think of them as some sort of uh, a legend. But one of the reports was back in 1850. It appeared in the Moreton Bay Courier, uh, and it was an aquatic monster seen off the property of a person in Logan River in Queensland, which is my state. 
and a female member of a Mr. Pryor, female member of his family, was walking near a large lagoon at the station that they were living on. When she saw on the surface of the water a living animal of extraordinary shape and dimensions, and she described it as the head appearing to be elongated and flattened like the bill of a platypus, the body from the place where it joined the head to about five feet backwards seemed like that of a gigantic eel, being about the ordinary thickness of a man's body. So we're not talking about something really tiny. We're talking about some really solid sort of, you know, creature. But she said it was much larger because its head was coiled. Oh, sorry, it had a coiled body. And beyond those coils was what seemed to be the tail of a fish and having the semi-transparent appearance of a bladder. Right. The head was small and narrow in proportion to the size of the body and it was furnished with what seemed to be two horns, which were quite white. So it's a real mix. <laughs> yeah, it's a real mix. At that first, was their description, yeah. First it sounded to me like you were describing, a, is it a plesiosaurus? I think that's it. When I did the New Zealand ones, you know, we have our tanifa here, which is kind of a creature who lives in the waters, and but not only in the waters, on the land as well. And in the 1800s, there were a number of sightings mm, and... Mm. Yeah. One of the opinions put forward was that it was the plesiosaurus. I don't know how they go from lagoon to lagoon because some lagoons actually dry out in summer here. You know, often they Yeah, right. So where where do they exist and, and how do they exist? So yeah, unless that again they've adapted to the environment to that yeah. situation. But it's a very short time for adaptation to take place though, you know, like 150, 200 years. Yeah, very true. Yeah, and of course, mm. yeah, your water holes do dry up. Mm. It's, an Australian thing, isn't it? Yeah, very interesting. And I remember reading about when I was doing research for my interview with that chap in Aussie, uh, an Aboriginal legend about mm. this creature that would take, and I don't know if it was one of these cautionary tales that parents told their kids but an Aboriginal creature that would actually take children if they went away from right. the parents. Yes, yes. I know I, what you're I talking about. don't know what its name was. That, was it the, the hairy man, the short hairy man? That was one of the ideas of what it was, but another one was a shadowy type figure. It, I just find these myths and legends so fascinating because – they all come from somewhere and they're not all stories. Some often, very often, as you say, it's uh, uh, maybe it's the only way a person can describe it, has the ability to describe what they saw, but it doesn't mean that it isn't a living uh, being of some description. Yeah. yeah, unlike the Wanjana who are spirit beings. You know, that's, it. that's it, that's it. Wanjana, um, that's it, yes. Yes. Yeah, so they're spirit beings, from my understanding anyway. And, I, you know, anyone who is an Australian Aboriginal Indigenous uh, person is listening to this, I do, I'm obviously acknowledging that I have no clue about your own understanding and that you understand your own culture far better than I ever could. Absolutely. Yeah, so Wanjana are spirit beings and, uh, yes, they were, they were used to threaten, have been used to threaten children to not stray away from them. Yeah, definitely. 
the reason I bring that up is that I heard, uh, I came across a story in my research of a fairly recent case of a sighting. Mm. And it was some teenagers, I think, or a teenager or something like this. I can't, I can't even remember. I wish I could remember it, but I, I remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. And that's fairly recent. I think it might have been in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that. I think you're right there. I actually think I have that newspaper clipping that I put on our uh, Strange Encounters Facebook page. I just, yeah, but, you know, my my interest in the Wanjana, I mean, when you see the paintings and, and while the uh, indig- our Indigenous people, you know, portray them as spirit beings, I have wondered sometimes whether they were actually, you know, in times gone by, whether they could have originally been extraterrestrial beings. My thought as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, and I do think that some extraterrestrials can actually be, I mean, I, I don't know why I think this exactly, but that, that they actually have the ability to be physical and non-physical. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I don't think that um, that's too, too big a stretch of the imagination because, let's face it, we have no, we're still discovering life on Earth. We have no idea of how life has evolved in the universe. So, um, and I do know that um, in the, there's a book called The Book of Urantia. And, yes. I'll yeah, and it's, so in there they talk about the midwayers and the midwayers are the beings who are not of earth and they have the ability to be physical and both non-physical. Right. And actually uh, years ago we had um, a guest speaker who had been to, I think it was the Farsight Institute and had been doing remote viewing there. I've heard of that. He, they had been asked to remote view um, life on Mars, and that's why I'd asked him to come along to, to be a guest speaker to talk about what they found. But right. He said that one of the exercises they did was to remote view God. Well, no one got any, they got nothing for that. But then they were asked to remote view the afterlife. And when they did that, they came across these beings called the midwayers which uh, led him to, you know, the book of Urantia, and I actually had a copy anyway, which is tone of a book. And I find that fascinating because it's all about the different beings and the different levels of life that populate the universe, basically. These midwayers are charged with the uh, the role of helping people um, after they've died to take where they need to go. A bit like, uh, anyway, spirit helpers after we die. These uh, have the ability to be physical as well. And I have wondered, were they extraterrestrials, you know, who had decided to take on this role or perhaps were doing that role before humans were even on Earth anyway? You know, so there's a lot lot to think about in that. Right. Yes, uh, an awful lot. And I've always said to people who, because I'm not religious at all, but for people who are religious and like my sister, for example, she's been a minister. Her and her husband have been a minister for decades. And when they talk mm, about angels, yep. they say to them, well, well, then think about it. What are angels but extraterrestrial mm, yeah, beings? exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, if you really will it down, Jesus was an alien hybrid. <laughs> I had a really interesting chat that I, one of my favourite guests, and you may have heard of me, wrote a book called Escaping from Eden. Um. Was that Paul Wallace? Yes, yes Paul yeah. Wallace, that's the one. Really fascinating. I've had him on twice. Such a lovely chap to talk to. And he was a minister for like 40 years. 
and he had an accident and he was recovering. So he spent some time going over Genesis because he had always had questions about Genesis, like let us go down and make man in our image. And, you know, he couldn't reconcile how there could only be one God and all these gods. And so in his studies, he came to the conclusion through studying ancient texts, including including the one you mentioned and other ancient literature from around the world, that humanity was created by a race of extraterrestrial beings who, in fact, were warring amongst themselves mm, over yeah. humanity. And I, I, you know, that really leads me into the idea of the jinn, Islamic jinn, because mm. they also sort of have been warring over humanity too in, in a more of a retaliatory way so yes um and i have wondered how they tie in with the alien abduction experiences because for those people who don't know about the gene these are beings that can attach themselves to family lines and they can be benefic or they can be malevolent and so and these are the sorts of stories that people have told me over the years who report close encounter experiences that you know in the the family line they have these abduction experiences that get passed on from generation to generation the generation some of them are you know they're they're quite traumatizing others they're not you know they're they're these are beings that are like people's families so their second family or maybe their first family they feel that their human family is their second family you know they're actually out there in the stars right yeah so there's so many cultural stories about these types of beings i think in ireland they have the brownies who do a play a similar role i've got a book on the different beings that play these roles in different cultures and it's amazing how similar they are uh, and how they play out in the lives of people who report close encounters absolutely paul in fact was in my second interview with him in his second book the scars of eden he talks about one african tribe and they have mummy waters, I think they call it the mummy waters. Mummy waters, oh, forgive me if I've got the name wrong. These beings who mm. live in or near the water who abduct females, breed with them, and then return them unharmed after they've had uh, a, a number of children. And in fact, he shared an experience from his family of a young woman who was abducted, missing for three years, and then returned unharmed. And during that period of time, she said she was held captive and bred with. Wow. For three, a person in his own family. Yeah, yeah. Living today? A distant family, yeah, mm, yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, there are stories of people who go missing for decades mm. and return and they haven't aged. Yeah. Rip Van Winkle is one that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. That old legend, yes, yes. Yeah. But, you know, even if uh, the, the uh, Indian mystic Sadhguru he sat down and I think I think he didn't, he just went into an altered state of consciousness spontaneously for, I can't remember, 10 days, two weeks, three weeks, I can't even remember now, sorry. Now he's travelling the world talking about, on a motorbike, mind you, talking about, you know, mysticism, his understanding of mysticism and transcendental experiences and how to deal with the world and you know, it, it's, it was like he went through some sort of shamanic initiation, you know, what shamans would call an initiation experience. Right. And this is what I think happens to people who have close encounters. Life is going a, along a certain trajectory. They have these experiences, and some of them start in childhood, of course, and then they're changed by them. 
they're changed mm. in many ways. You know, they become mm. uh, spiritually engaged, less interested in worldly experiences, uh, less, you know, care less about what other people think of them. Basically, they want to, they become less materialistic and they want to be more of who they really are. They want to align what exists within themselves in their outer world. So I see a lot of them, I've followed them over the years and I've stayed yeah. in touch with a few who develop an interest in healing. And so they go on and become healers. For example, I have a, one of those people I, I met many years ago. We've stayed in touch and become friends and he was a nurse at the time when he was having his experiences and now he's, he does, uh, he's a massage therapist. So there's this switch to more natural ways of healing. Yeah, absolutely. Although, having said that, there was a young woman who became, after her experiences, she became a, she studied psychology and became a psychologist because she wanted to help people who'd had these experiences through mainstream medical systems. So, yeah, there's, but it's less of those. It's more they go into the alternative health fields. I have a friend who did that same thing and she's a practicing psychologist. And, mm. and she kind of uh, patterns herself after Spock, she, that questioning type, but she's been an experiencer too her entire life. Mm, yes. And if they don't go down the healing path, they go down the creative path. Mm. So they become artists, you know, they're musicians, performers, singers, actors. They'll do sculpting. They'll become, you know, they'll, they'll paint They'll do all sorts of things. There was one gentleman who was making samurai swords and selling them. Another one was doing welding forms and selling those. And they changed from completely left-brain jobs yeah. to right-brain work, yeah. right? And that's that's really interesting to me. And I wonder, you know, I think that they probably had that right-brain latency, but their experiences switched their hemispheric focus in their brain to that that more creative side and and it switched it on it triggered it could have possibly that's a, actually a good point but also the right brain side that that intuitive creative side is more closely attached to your heart and your feeling mm, mm. yes and and actually it could be one of the reasons why that particular family line is selected because then i find and you probably found this too that People who report close encounters often say, I mean, they often say, oh, I see dead people. Mm. I've had spontaneous mediumship things and I don't, you know, I don't know what that is, where it is coming from. Mm. Or they'll, they'll start doing glossolalia where they're speaking in tongues or, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll suddenly become psychic, you know, in a, in a way that already, or if they already had those abilities, they're enhanced 10 times over. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, so, and that's become quite common. And in the UFO research field, that's really only, we've really only come to understand that in the last 15 years, mm -hmm. you know, to acknowledge that. Before that, it wasn't really being acknowledged much. It was by a handful of people, but not many. Right. I, I can speak from my personal experience. I My very first recollection of an experience was when I was three three years old that was my first conscious memory although I had an experience earlier but I don't recall seeing beings in that time but I was actually speaking with the niece of Biddy and Barney Hill a while ago mm. and she's a great researcher now and she said to me which I didn't know she said many many of the thousands of experiences 
that she's talked to had their first experience when they were three years old. Yes, yep. And I didn't know that. So that was a real revelation for me and, and a validation as well yep. that, that it was, I'm getting goosebumps now, mm. that it was actually correct. Mm. Yeah. And I recall, and because I am psychic medium, I recall being in, like Susie, being in learning environments like in a classroom that's the only thing that can liken it to my entire life and I remember them teaching me specific things like how to move things with my mind the importance of sound and vibration the importance of intent and I know that what they taught me has has made a huge difference to my mm. ability yeah. to pick up on yeah. things yeah it's very common mm. very common many years ago I was doing a, a a weekly radio show, which I stopped, but then one of our team took over, and he did continue to do that for 17 years. It was called Paranormal Panel on Commercial Radio here on Radio 4BC. And, and I was telling him what I was finding in my research and was interviewing people, talking to him about this and saying that, yeah, become highly creative. And it's beyond statistics, right? This was so predictable. 95% of people who were reporting close encounters, and this would have been going back in the late 90s because I'd had enough time to, you know, over a decade or more to be able to gather that information. And I was saying to him that um, this is highly predictable. Right. Well, he tested it out on radio. So every person who would come on radio, because it was a talkback show, um, the host would ask, so, so what do you do in your spare time? You know, like, and, and it would always come up. Oh, I write. I write poetry, I paint, I sing, I perform, I I'm a dancer, I'm this and that. And they were blown away. Over about a year of asking these people, they were just blown away how predictable it was, going from raised eyebrows, oh, really, to, you know, then going, and then themselves going, we expect this, you know, yeah, yeah. to report it. So it's, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. I think we should be doing some more research into that. Yeah, that's really interesting because uh, I never thought about that. But all my life, I've done fine arts and performing arts. I sculpt, I paint. I used to do silversmithing, talk back, um, not talk back, uh, voiceover. And now I do the podcast. So, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Very, very interesting. Yeah. And, and I had, I actually, until you mentioned that, I hadn't actually given that a lot of thought. Someone who picked it up very early on was John Spencer from Bufora, the British UFO organisation, which I think they closed their doors a few years ago. And he wrote right. a book called Gifts of the Gods. And in there he spoke, uh, and now that's going back, oh, gosh, I can't even remember the date of it, but um, uh, it's going back quite a while. And he was the first person, I think, who published about it, about that phenomenon. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yes, and isn't it interesting how since the governments have been drip-feeding people the past two or three or four years and the media has now changed their way that they're reporting UFO encounters, especially since the US military came out and said, yes, these things are real, we don't know what they are, although that report was a bit of a whitewash, but we knew it was going to be. That wasn't any any uh, anything unexpected. but the fact that the pilots, more pilots, not just military pilots, in fact, I saw a report just the other day 
of a couple of pilots, and I don't remember where it was, reported seeing a UFO during their routine flight. Well, it's only recently, only in the past maybe month. Yes. And I find it's quite interesting how, of course, public's been manipulated so that the opinion is slowly changing, but it's really great that people are now more open and at least willing to entertain the prospect of life outside of this reality as we know it. Yes. I think that DNI report was was underestimated by a lot of UFO interested people because uh, even though it was only, what was it, nine pages or something and it would have been nice to have all the uh, classified material being released to the public. Yes. But one of the things that I'd like to point out to people was remember in there there was a statement that said 143 pilots out of 144 could not identify UFOs. Never underestimate that. Um, And I think that that report, when it came out, it wasn't so much about, I mean, there were a couple of little gems in there that you could easily skip over, but it was designed to do something, not be something. I think it was designed to offer leverage down the track, really. Yeah. So, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, Yeah. interesting times, doesn't it? Interesting times. I mean, I know certainly over my lifetime and seen uh, a vast difference in people's acceptance. And uh, even some scientists, what about Michio Kaku? Yes, yes. He's done a flip around and he said, you know, it's no longer the the public's, uh, no longer the researchers' responsibility to prove that UFOs exist. It's now the responsibility for the government to prove that they don't. Yeah, that is really great. Yeah, that was, yeah. It's quite an interesting chat to to talk yeah. to. So, Cheryl, what got you into UFO, into the UFO side of it? Are you an experiencer yourself? I have. I've seen, uh, I've had about um, seven UFO sightings, but which are quite, Incredible, but I've also had a close encounter. I've only ever had one close encounter, which is very strange. I mean, not very strange, but it's, you know, nothing like some people who have it their whole life at all. Right. My experience happened in uh, around 1990, 91, and I was in bed and with my ex-husband and we were asleep and I woke up. And I don't know why I woke up. It was in the early hours of the morning. And I woke up to see these three small greys standing beside the bed. Now, here's a question for you. Why are there always three? I was just going to say that they always come in free, don't they? I've never seen them in less than three. I don't know yeah. what that's about. It's it's That's another predictable part yeah. of most reports. But anyway, so like I said, it was in the early hours of the morning. It was still dark and uh, they were standing there and they were just looking at me, not moving, just staring. The, the outside street light was shining in. The bedroom window and I was on the window side and so I could see the silhouettes of them standing there and except I do have a memory of their eyes I'm not really sure how I could see that because they were shadowy but anyway I do have a memory right and I was frightened I have to tell you I was terrified because I was wide awake mm-hmm. so when I talk you know before that I had spoken to I had started that was 99 I got involved in 88 and I just jumped in boots and all, and I was, in, you know, talking to people who'd had uh, close encounters. Abductions were really high in those mm. days. And so for probably for about three years I'd been talking to people who talked about how terrified they were 
Well, I got a real taste of it that night, but I, I did a very strange thing. I, you know, pulled the sheet up over my head and I started spontaneously saying the Lord's Prayer. And I've heard of a few people since then who did something similar. But I didn't, it was not conscious, it was just an automatic response. And like I've said to a few people, I didn't even know I still knew it because I'd learned it in Sunday school and forgotten it, you know. Right. And then I, the next morning I woke up, I had no memory until about lunchtime or just after lunch and something triggered the memory of the night before and I went, whoa, that happened last night, right? So there's a few questions around the whole experience. I mean, who goes to sleep terrified with your heart beating out of your chest? Mm. And it was instantaneous, you know. As soon as I pulled that sheet up, that was it. My last memory, I was. It was next thing. It was morning. So yeah, there's some. There's a gap there, and I sort of left it aside because in '98, I think Bud Hopkins was here in Australia, and I flew down to Sydney to a conference where he was speaking with Leslie. Leslie Keane was with him at the time. You know, he stood up on the stage and he was saying exactly these things that that I was saying to you that. You know, there's the people go down the healing path or the creative aspect, right? And I'm going, wow, tick, 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 ticking all my boxes of things that I had discovered. But he did say, you know what, if you, because hypnotherapy was a, a way of dealing with memory recall in, at those times. A lot of people were having it. And I'm, I happen to be a clinical hypnotherapist myself. But he did say, you know, if your life is going smoothly, and getting on with things, you're coping with your experiences. He suggested that people don't dig around in their unconscious because they may not like more of what find. So he basically said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I, I sort of felt that was really, really grounded advice mm. uh, because I do know some people who had hypnotherapy and for memory recall. And one, you know, you can't guarantee that the memory recall is accurate because that's not how the unconscious mind works. It's, it's you know, once you go into that altered state of consciousness, your creative aspect just completely unfurls. Right. And the mind has a, it doesn't like, the unconscious doesn't like gaps, so it tends to fill in pieces mm -hmm. between clusters of memory. And so I've never dug around in my own mind to, to find out, you know, what happened because, you know, I know that these things happen. I know that people have experiences. And I just don't feel the need. Yeah. You know, a lot of people have said, why don't you? And I said, I don't feel the need. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I'm always of the attitude that if you're meant to know, then that memory will return. Like an example that I had was when I was young, maybe five, four, five, six, somewhere between those ages, we had an experience where a UFO came down over our house in the middle of the day. It's morning. Sorry, it's morning. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. The workers in the factory across the road from where I lived were all outside having their coffee. So they saw it and made this huge whirring noise, which brought my mum outside. And then it, it was then, then it took off. And then we had a men in black visit the next morning from the men in black. And that was all I recall at that stage. And then it was probably in my 30s. I... Uh, somebody, I can't remember what triggered the memory, but I remember this blue beam coming out of the UFO, taking me up, and I had a face-to-face -face encounter with these beings. And they said to me, you won't remember this now, but when you need this memory, it will return to you. And it did. Mm. And mm. I, I believe that it's the same for 
any experience it. If you're meant to have that memory, if it's important to you for whatever reason, then it will be there for you when you need it. Hmm. And I, I think that the timing of the memory returning is um, significant yes, too. Yes, absolutely. And it reminds me of the Tibetan term of tradition. And the Tibetan term is, and that's spelled T-E-R-M-A, if anyone who wants to look it up, is that there are two types of termers. One is physical. So you might have a master who creates a physical object, an artefact, and then buries it for it to be, and it may have inscriptions on it, and it is not for the time that they're in, it's time for the time when it's dug up right. to have meaning and purpose for when the time that it's dug up. But it can also happen in your consciousness. So they can implant information into their initiate's mind that can stay there, you know, be latent in their mind, not only to be awakened later on in this life, but sometimes in future lives. So the information becomes available to that person at a time when they can make the most use of it and it will be significant in their existence. And it's a bit like shamanic experiences. The shamans talk about that the, the shamans are born with the seeds of that within them. And at a certain time, it is activated within them to be called forth for their vocation. Mm. And it is at the right time for that individual. Mm. And something will happen. And close encounter experiences, I do liken them to shamanic initiation experiences because it is an awakening for people. Mm. And the more that they go down that path, the more they are, they are living their vocation. They're, they're doing their dharma, you know, they're, they're doing what they came here to do, like you're doing this now. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's part of you. It's your essence playing out in the world, mm. you know, and you're doing many things, but this is how it's, it's um, presenting itself into, into the world stage basically. And this is what, what happens with people who report close encounters. They have this, that, you know, I remember I spoke to a lot <laughs> A lot of abductees in the 90s. I mean, I had no life then. <laughs> I often say that because I just spent the 1990s on the phone. Um, there weren't too many people around in those days. There weren't, well, there's less UFO groups around now, but there are more Facebook pages where people can have chats right. with people and process their experiences. But in those days, there wasn't. You know, people would ring up and they'd often be traumatized by their experiences because they had no. Our culture doesn't support those types of experiences. No cultural context for them whatsoever. No acceptance of them whatsoever Mm. in those days, except in that just in the UFO community. Although there were a lot of documentaries that were being made in at that time, so they were struggling. And what they would struggle with was the loss of who they were, their identity, right before their experiences. They wanted to go back. I say, sorry, it's not going to happen. You are, this has happened. You have to integrate it. And I'd say, these experiences change people. But the clue to surviving them, if you want to put it that way, or to integrating them, is to let them change you, Mm. to be more of who you are, to potentiate you in the world, to so that you then go on and 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 be and live and walk 
the life that these experiences have created for you. Absolutely. Oh, I 100% agree with that. You can never go back. Well, for, for me personally, I mean, it's been my life, my entire life. It's as much part of my life as breathing is. It does. It alters you. And I... I know that uh, I'm doing part of the work that I agreed to do in speaking. I've never been shy about speaking about my UFO experiences, even as a child, to my detriment because people weren't ready to hear back then, but it didn't stop me from speaking. And I know this is partly because of the training I received and because it's part of who I am. It's, you know, it's part of my soul essence and it does alter your life. And for people who, up until the point that they have their experience, are just going about their normal day-to-day reality, not perhaps not even questioning other paradigms, other ways of being or, or knowing of other existences other than this one, it's life-shattering and it's life-reaffirming in a lot of ways. So it, it can, for people, it, it can be... Uh, incredibly traumatic and that's one of the reasons I started my Facebook group. I have a Facebook group that has, it's not a large group, it has over 6,000 members but I started it so it would be a place for people who could talk about not only UFOs but other paranormal experiences they had in a safe place, a safe environment where they wouldn't be judged where they could speak freely without fear of being ridiculed because that's so important when because they are shattered they they don't know their view of reality is completely gone and they have to readjust their whole paradigm of being pretty much Mm, yeah and then they have a role to play yes so and that's enough the next step yes you know they they adjust they work on themselves that you know in, in a shamanic initiation you're dragged off by the spirits, right? Mm. In a classic initiation experience, you're dragged off by the spirits. You are dismembered, dismantled, and then you have all these experiences in that state and then you are put back together, but you are put back together because when you're dismantled, you become the hollow bone, what the shamans call the hollow bone. There's nothing left. Right. And I've done, I've, I teach shamanic practices, so, and I've been through some really interesting and very difficult dismemberment journeys. I am bashed into the ground, you know, dragged over waterfalls, drowned, strips of flesh, you know, pulled off and on. But what happens is you then rebuild yourself and you rebuild yourself from the inside out. Mm. Whereas before, many of us, our identity is formed from the outside in based on other people's expectations, social expectations, cultural expectations, you know. So we become more authentic. We live a more authentic life. And that's, that's the first step. The next step is then finding a place for your authenticity in the world. Right. Because we can't be like a, a monk living on a mountain in Tibet. <laughs> We've got to, we live in the Western world, right? Right. We then have to find a way that we can take what we've become and put it into the world. Mm. And that's where a lot of people go from from the you know the left brain jobs, some of them corporate, over to the healing fields mm. or the creative fields, because it's it's a way those things are accepted mm. in our society and that's where they can find a place to belong. And the value of belonging in a society can never be underestimated. Absolutely. And, you know, once they manage to do that integration and move on, then they make huge differences Mm. to people around them, to their community, to raising the 
energetic level of everybody around them. And they don't even have to say anything. It doesn't have to be a, it's just the energies are at that level that it automatically goes out to those around them and, and does that, has that effect on them. Mm. Well, we can identify some celebrities who've had um, close encounters or UFO sightings. And then, yeah, they've come out and they've spoken about that. I mean, we had, uh, was it John Lennon who wrote the book about the Eggman? Yeah. Um, you know, which was about an alien, about seeing UFOs, you know. But, you know, there are other celebrities who, you know, sometimes this was why I really got interested in one aspect of close encounter experiences was, you know, being on the end of a telephone line in the years gone by and waiting for people to report to us, I was thinking, how can I find them? Right. You know, knowing what I know, what I knew then about the types, the demographics of these people, where would I find them? Well, guess what? I'd probably see them on the big screen. I'd see them on stages singing to people. I would see them in the performing arts, you know. I would see some artists. And here in Australia, we pro Hart, who's passed away. He was a well-known Australian artist. Well, guess what? He did this painting of an Australian outback scene with a UFO in it. Oh, wow. So you can predict who's probably had some sort of close encounter or at least had some UFO sightings. Mm. One of them I think I could predict would be Jackie Chan. Mm. He, he actually sings, he directs, he produces, he acts. He's a highly creative person. He's in the martial arts. He's got to have had seen UFOs or had some sort of close encounter, but you'd never know it. He wouldn't talk about it. Mm. Yeah, people in those situations. So I think for listeners, if you... Think about the types of people that you know, even in your own countries, who've, you know, who we have celebrities like here in Australia, Olivia Newton John had had UFO sightings. What's his name? I can't think of his name at the moment, but, but other Australian personalities, and there would be some in New Zealand who've, because of, you know, their creative background, you can bet they've had some type of event. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Or at the very least, some type of spiritual event. Mm, yeah. That's, that's opened the door for them. That's so interesting. Of all the people you've interviewed in your role in the UFO field, what is the biggest thing that you've come away with? <laughs> I use that question. You know, I think it would have to be when I got involved, I was thinking, I was asking the questions, who are they, where are they from, and why are they here? Mm. But it very quickly went to who am I, where am I from, and why am I here? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I think for me, the UFO subject, you know, which I've inhabited, the only word I can describe it is inhabited for decades, is, is the greatest tool for personal and spiritual development that I have ever explored mm. and for me it's it's bigger larger than the afterlife it's right because it encompasses that it encompasses shamanism it encompasses healing mm. it encompasses science it encompasses data it's everything you know that everything is in the subject so I think anyone looking for something to explore you can't go wrong with this subject. Yeah, it opens so many doors. It, mm. uh, it leads, it creates questions and yes. that leads to more questions and that leads mm. to more knowing. It's a very, very interesting, very interesting topic. One of my 
well, my favourite star person, he said to me once, and it's words that I've tried to live by ever since he said it to me, it made such an impact on me. He said to me, Marianne, whenever you do anything, you must do it from your heart. When mm. you think, think from your heart. When you speak, speak from your heart. When you act, act from your heart. Mm. And those were really, really wise. Of course, it's not easy to do because, you know, you're human and people can, you know, get under your skin and you can get annoyed and angry but it's what he's talking about is a total way of living and a total way of being and it's a spiritual thing as much as a physical thing really yeah absolutely I, I I agree with that and and you know it'll take you on the path that you would not even know if you let it you know mm. you would never have known that path existed uh unless you list unless you let the subject take you along it and it's taken me down some really interesting paths. You know, at, at one stage, uh, I bought a property and opened a new age centre where we ran, oh, what was it, uh, yoga classes, tai chi classes, oh, wow. workshops on numerology. We used to have healing days and psychic fairs. And this is like going back in, I bought that property in 95. You know, there were things I was doing there that weren't being done in Brisbane. But I've often wondered how did my experiences you know, they, they did propel me. They played mm. a part in going down that path. Absolutely. Very, very much so, yeah. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to that because it was my experiences that led me into the nursing path to begin with because I wanted mm. to make a difference, a positive difference in people's lives. Yes, yeah. And it's not always easy trying to navigate these paths because, I mean, at one stage, I you know, I, I sort of came to a point in my life and I, I wondered, this is about 10 years ago, and I asked myself, why am I so interested in the UFO subject? What draws me to it? And why am I just as interested in the afterlife mm. and Edith experiences and all that? And I was taken down a path, and this is why it's important to put those questions out there, I was taken down a path that led me to shamanism. And that was where I I did some incredible journeys and one of them, the shamanic journey, and one of them was where I was shown, because everything's symbolic in a journey, and I was shown a, uh, a desert area in Australia with just some, some like mud <laughs> hills in the background, but there was a group of Aboriginal people around a fire having a corroboree. There was one Aboriginal elder off to the side and he was standing there with a walking stick just looking at me and he it's all done in, in silence and he opens one arm and he sort of unfolds it in front of him as if like a hug but and then he put points up and I look up above the fire where the corroboree is and here's a spaceship and the message was it's always been like this it's always been like this so what I got out of that was that indigenous people have for a long time understood that first of all, that these interactions have been going on a long time. Yes, absolutely. We we do know in history that certain practices are, were uh, the locations for them were set where ley lines cross. Mm. So there are locations are particular for these types of things to happen. Mm. So there are ceremonies and a certain locations that are where these ceremonies are held. And at that time, it possibly opens up a portal of through consciousness for these interactions to take place. And I think we've seen that over and over and over again. And I've, I have a, a friend who was a long-time crop circle researcher when she lived in the UK for 27 years. 
She's now moved back to Australia. And she was very interested in dowsing and she was um, doing dowsing. I think it was Richard Hall, who's also passed away now. He was well known in the UK for dowsing. He taught her basically everything he, he knew and, uh, you know, they would douse for the ley lines that would go through their sacred sites but also through the crop circles. And where the, they, would, they would be found where crop circles crossed. And they could also douse and find what she called whirlies where the, um, the energy would be in a spiral pattern right. and it would be going up to the, into the air like, like a gusher, right. like energy would be coming out. And she said these ley lines, like they, were in, uh, they would fly over the crop circles at various times and they could douse in the air as they were going over the crop circles and the, the rods would open or crisscross, you know, depending on whether they were over a crop circle or not. So these, were, these energy fountains go way up into, into the atmosphere and, and who knows, perhaps they create a grid in the atmosphere and perhaps this is a grid that the, um, some UFOs follow, you know. So it's all there. We just have to put the pieces together. That reminds me of that book by Bruce Cathy and the Harmonic Grid. Do you remember? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah he yeah. was way ahead of his time. For listeners, Bruce Cathy was a New Zealand pilot who did a lot of research in sort of, well, I don't really know how to explain it, in the harmonic grids around the planet. Mm. And he came to all this through mathematics, I believe. Yeah. So he didn't approach it from a spiritual angle. It was purely from a scientific angle. But it is a very, it's a very interesting book. I believe it's called Harmonic Grid. Harmonic 33, I think. Harmonic 33, that's it. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And it came out in the 70s maybe or, or a bit later, I'm not sure. But it was kind of underestimated at the time and then it came back into popularity again when more information about UFOs and stuff like that came out from other sources and then his work was looked at again but I I, I think he was pretty on to it mm, mm. I think he's passed away now, yes he has he? yes he died yeah. some time ago yeah oh right yeah we were trying to get him out to Australia to speak at one of our conferences but he wasn't wasn't well I think yeah yeah, he very, very interesting chap. So where do you see yourself going now? Well, you know, uh, probably on the same path, but I'm sure there'll be different curves in the road because, you know, UFO reports, uh, there's less of them now mm. that we get here in at UFO Research Queensland. But I think, um, I don't know, I think that the um, we're sort of at a crossroads in just in on the UFO subject, we're sort of at a crossroads where we've gathered all this information. I mean, how long do we keep gathering yeah. data? Yeah. You know, yeah. how long do we keep gathering it? But I think I've, you know, what's happened since 2017 when Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie King, you know, had that article published in the New York Times and Washington Post and and everything that's happened since then with, you know, with the uh, the footage that was has come out and now the ATIP report, mm. you know, saying that uh, they're not ours and the Chinese are saying they're not ours yeah. or they're not Russian, you know, whose are they? Well, and then we've got these US Navy pilots who are saying we're seeing UFOs on a daily basis. I mean, things have hotted up. Mm. Like, you know, I never would have predicted that that would have become more mainstream, as mainstream as it has. It was just even five years ago I couldn't have predicted that. 
now I think it's more about where the data takes us, what we do with that, what we can do with it, how we can use that to leverage, you know, governments to to come out and talk about this, although that's probably not going to happen until it's actually an issue on some ballot paper somewhere, you know. Uh, I, I think I think it ball is in play and we just have to wait and see what happens. Back in the 80s, one of my star people said to me, he said, Marianne, I said, what about the release of the information that the governments hold about you guys? And he said to me back in the 80s, he said, Marianne, we've given governments an ultimation. I'm just paraphrasing here. That they have to release the information of this to humanity as a whole so people can make their own minds up they can find their own spiritual path if they do not release it we have told them we will take that matter out of their hands and we will step in Mm. i don't know how that would play out you know because um i imagine that and let's face it i'm a trekkie (laughs) yeah me too yeah me too i think i think most experiences are to one degree or another to be honest i'm going to draw a little bit on star trek from my understanding but having said that some of it you know a lot of it uh, i mean i believe gene roddenberry was seeing a medium at the time phyllis schlemmer and that's where he got a lot of his ideas for the show from who knows where she was getting the information from in the ethers i am but yeah, I asked my star people, I said, with programs like Star Trek and these other science fiction shows that are out, how much information have you guys actually given to people in, in, in terms of planting seeds in their minds? And he said, we've given a lot of information. Yeah, yeah, I think so. They were spot on in a lot of ways. They, they covered the abduction experiences. Yeah. Oh, that's what I was going to talk about, first contact, about I don't know how what uh, extraterrestrials would do to take it out of the hand of uh, Earth governments to make themselves known. I think they would have had a lot of experience with those contact um, events in the past and they have, you know, they probably have formed their own policies and procedures, practices in how to deal with that. What they are, I haven't got a clue. I doubt it would be them showing up in, in loads in our skies i think that would just be too much for humanity and i don't think that they're about that about creating harm no they're not in, yeah on in human affairs so i think that they'd be very careful about how they did it but they may and i do believe that like you say that they're passing on information to people in ways that are uh, you know they're not giving them a document mm-hmm. <laughs> that way they're giving them ideas mm. they're prompting people and uh, to go down certain paths. I interviewed a chap last season and the, the episode was called The Incident at Alloway's Creek, the Alloway's Creek Incident. Now, this guy was a kid four years old when a UFO crashed in the swamps behind where he, uh, his mum lived and his aunt lived in a house next door, way out in the wops. And this UFO crashed. It was near a nuclear plant, actually. And they saw it crash. It was actually shot down. They saw this beam of light come down, hit the hit the UFO, and it imploded, he said. It imploded. And he talks about how the, the government, the military was there within 20 minutes at their farm. They had the site cleaned out in the dark within two hours. 
and they made all they threatened his mum, who was a single mother, and they said to her, "If you tell anyone about this, we'll take your son away from you." Mm. And so, for years, she was forced to keep. But his mum died about a year ago, so now he's speaking out because there's nothing, no threat mm. that they can place over her. So he's speaking out about it, and we talked about this about what you and I have just talked about. And he said, you know, we are the disclosure. Us experiences are the disclosure. And more and more of us are going to speak out about it. And I guess in a way that's what I'm doing with my podcast. That's what you're doing with your work. So really, I, I kind of tend to feel that it's that it will come through more and more people speaking out, more and more people accepting. And I think it's going to come that way rather than from governments because governments will never tell you the truth. No, no. They're going to want to control that that narrative. Absolutely. Um, and I think that there's a real move on at the moment for them to sort of whitewash anything that happened before the uh, the Nimitz encounter. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, with the tic-tac and they're going to try and establish that, oh, this is, this is happening now, mm -hmm. you know. They'll never be able to lie about what's happened in the past. But that's, that is why it is so important that people like yourself have podcasts and have platforms for people to speak about this because, you know, that can gain momentum. Mm. That, like you say, that disclosure, that grassroots disclosure is the, is the way to go. And people always forget that people power is far stronger than, you know, governmental power or even media power. Oh, it's people funny. power will always win if sometimes it just takes a while to catch on yeah absolutely well this was back in the 80s they told me this and since then i've seen a steady increase in people coming forward uh people not being so shy about speaking out uh, despite the ridicule and now you know i can talk to people now and they don't laugh to my face anymore like they would previously because mm. people are more accepting and certainly with everything that's happening around the world it's making people pause and think and consider other alternatives yes yes exactly and i think when you have people like michio kaku speaking out now we've got rv Lowe, you know who was who uh is you know says that he's looking for the Galileo project is looking yeah. for extraterrestrial artifacts in the, you know, in the, in the solar system and beyond. Like, and now there are UFO researchers who are getting on board with the Galileo yeah. project. We've got Lou Elizondo who's joined them, Chris Mallon, you know, intelligent ex-intelligence who've joined them. There's a lot happening. There is a lot happening now. Professor mm -hmm. Avi Loeb, he's the only one I've ever been nervous about speaking to because he's, you know, such a scientific brain. And I thought, I actually... When I heard about him, I thought, oh, I'd really love to speak to this chap. He's so cool. So how can I get in touch with him? So I just looked up his Harvard University address and emailed him. And he came on my show. He was lovely, lovely, yeah. lovely chap. So yeah. easy to talk to. So brave considering his standing in the community and all the scientific accolades that this man has to come out and say Oumuamua was an extraterrestrial object, not a yep. naturally occurring object. Yep. And the scientific explanations as to why. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's uh, 
That's a very interesting artifact. And uh, I'm glad to see that he's the Galileo project is steaming ahead. Yes. And the people who are getting on board with that, they're and UFO researchers too. They're on they're they've joined. Like, wow, you know, this is this is the first scientists and UFO researchers working together. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's it's exciting times we live in. I say that quite often get goosebumps. It's, <laughs> it's exciting times we live in. Uh, I I believe that despite all the fear porn that's been put out into the world at the moment about numerous different things, it's exciting times because we as a humanity are moving forward as a whole. Mm, yeah. It's interesting how people are facing fears at the moment, mm. you know, having to face fears mm. at the moment that way, and yet we have these things in the background, these big movements in the background happening, and you know, for these changes over the last three years in the UFO field, that's phenomenal. People should never underestimate that. That is phenomenal. And I think that, I mean, I know that there are behind the scenes too, there are astronomers who are taking an interest in this too and there's moves in that field uh, behind RV Lobe where they're going, what's the, what is the, what's this UFO? What are these UFOs? Like what's that all about? What's happening? Like, they want to know before they just, you know, whitewash it and say, we don't want to know about that. Talk to the hand, basically. Yeah. You know? <laughs> don't tell us about that. You're all idiots. Not anymore. You know, and for a long time, I mean, I've said to people, well, if you think that I'm a, a bit of a fool for taking on board the UFO subject and accepting it as real, then I'm glad because I'm, you know, sharing that space with astronauts, mm. right? intelligent people who've been out in space. Mm. Some of them who've said that they've seen things that, you know, that there were things following them in, on their missions. Yes. You know, so I don't care what you think because actually, you know, I don't think you've done your homework basically. Interesting that you say three years ago. I'm going to go back to that. Back in the 80s again, I said, what's going to happen? And we talked about the earth and earth changes, you know that a lot of experiences talk about, about the need for looking after the earth and protecting her and environmental tragedies that could occur. And they they said to me, he said to me, Marianne, he said, what's happening is currently the earth's been held in position like a baby and he, he, he did this, like you're rocking a baby with your hands. And he said, we're waiting till a certain percentage of humanity has reached a level of spiritual awakening then the energies will change and things will move forward very fast well three years ago that point was reached and I felt the change I literally felt the change in energy that a certain percentage of humanity was when I say awake they were questioning status quo they were questioning they were finding their spiritual path they were questioning the beliefs and the teachings that they had been taught for eons they were questioning why do things have to be like this why and I felt the energy shift I literally felt it in my body and as soon as I felt it I made a post in my group saying this has just happened now from this watch what this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen and you're going to see more people standing up and speaking out and then the Me Too movement started and then all other movements started and since then there's been a massive change in humanity. Yes, there has. And, you know, I guess this is the only upside of the pandemic 
is that people had to stop mm. and face themselves, reevaluate their lives, yep. reevaluate what they think they know. And uh, it's like we had a planetary near-death experience. Yeah. And, you know, these everything that uh, you and I have been talking about, how people are changed by their experiences. Absolutely. It happened to humanity on a global level. Yeah. And since then, how many, how many podcasts have come out? Like, wow, mm. How, mm. hundreds, hundreds. And that's another creative expression of that experience, you know, talking about UFOs, talking about the environment, talking about spiritual education, the afterlife, everything. It's like there's an explosion mm. of people wanting to share and communicate. I mean, that's just one thing that I've seen, right, and there's a lot of other things happening that aren't so much in your face, but wow. So it's a bit like, you know, we're 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 in the Renaissance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Looking at different ways yeah. to do things in a more progressive, useful, harmonious, creative way. And people are looking more at looking after the planet and recognizing that she's a living entity as well. And she has to go through yes. her own growth and development. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we're not separate from her. You know, as she goes through her growing pains, we feel it and she feels what we go through as well. It's it's a symbiotic relationship. Mm, mm. <clears throat> no, it's a very, very complex experience that we've all gone through. And, you know, this I'm just relating this as a planetary near-death experience for people, individuals who have these types of experience, what mm, they mm. go through. What the planet's gone mm. through is what individuals go through, where they, they go, okay, who am I now? What's really important mm. to me? What do I want to do mm. with my life now? You know, we're seeing this great shift. Culturally, uh, socially, economically, governmentally. Here we, you might have been hearing about the, the great resignation that's supposed to come yes. in Australia in March 2022 where, and it started in uh, China where young people are saying, hey, guess what, I don't want to go into debt for the rest of my life and, and work to pay off a, a mortgage or to, to do things. I want to have a simpler life. I want to have a life. Yeah. Choosing to have less material goods in their life. That was the first article I saw come out a few months ago about that. But the, the state in China, they didn't like that. They want you to be part of the system. But, you mm. know, but the young people were saying, no, thank you. Another article I saw about a month ago from another country, and then there was one written uh, not too long ago uh, about, you know, the great resignation is going to hit Australia in March 2022 and the tables are going to be turned and uh, employee employers are going to have to market their jobs. The tables will be turned and we don't have to market ourselves to employers. The employers have to market the work because people are making different choices. They're deciding to do what they love, mm. start a business doing what they love, you know. Um, so, and this is exactly what happens to people who have close encounters and near-death experiences and all sorts of experiences where they, they reevaluate and, and, mm. and choose a lifestyle which is where the outer world is, their outer world is much more aligned with their inner world. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it exciting? It is. It is. It's very exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see where we're going to be in, in another three or four years. Oh, yes. Uh, like when COVID first started, I put out uh, a mini podcast called The End Game. And in it, I talked uh, a little bit about 
conspiracy, not much because this podcast isn't a conspiracy podcast, but I put out more about social manipulation and how the CIA termed the phrase conspiracy therapy mm. as a way of discrediting people who question yes. the status quo yep. and how it was socially manipulated to be a bad thing when actually people are just questioning. Mm. And these days, the difference here in New Zealand, anyway, the difference between a thing being a conspiracy theory and a fact seems to be about six months in New Zealand at the moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's been like that here yeah. too in Australia. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think actually Russell Brand said that. Oh, did he? <laughs> yes, he said the difference between a conspiracy theory and a, and a, and a fact is six months. <laughs> I like Russell Brand. He's really cool. He's, yeah. uh, I find him an incredibly wise person mm. in a lot of ways, very deep. And you know, his experiences certainly show. I know he's a figure that polarizes people for sure. For mm. sure. My understanding is a little bit different to most, a lot of experiences on what's happening. And so what I said basically was to people, I said, don't buy into the fear that's been put out into the public. That's deliberately been manipulated because the fear is being used to control you. Mm, mm. And try and see past your fear. If you're fearful about hearing about COVID or whatever situation, go outside, ground yourself, take your shoes off, walk in nature, hug a tree, go and find somebody in your neighbourhood who could use some help. That single mum down the road, is she okay? Is there anything you can do to help her? That old person who lives next to you, maybe they just need somebody to say hi. You know, look what you can, to see what you can do in your neighbourhood to help those who are struggling. And then that will help you get out of that fear state. Yeah, yeah. Just touching on the point of fear and going back to the UFO subject, I think that, let me start, let me just preface this and let's say that I'm forever grateful for Stephen Greer with the Disclosure Project mm. and bringing those, those uh, witnesses forward and the press conference that was held at the Washington Press Club. That was great. I think he did the UFO community a service there. And from now on, um, I've been able to talk about though when I speak at community groups and library groups and wherever, I can always quote that. And I, I will be forever grateful for him bringing those uh, very credible witnesses forward. However, I do not agree with him that all extraterrestrials are benign. Oh, no, no, absolutely. No. I, I'm so sorry. Sorry. No, you're right. I'm totally with you on that. In fact, that's what I was going to go into before, but I didn't. My mm. knowing is that there's three groups. There's those that are benign and and are benevolent towards humans, want to help humans develop their full potential and become a part of the greater intergalactic community. There are those who made an agreement with the US government who are not benevolent who do not have humanity's best interests at heart and, in fact, could care less about humanity. We're just cattle to them. They don't care about us at all. Then the third group are neutrals. They just watch and observe. Mm. Don't participate either way. That's my knowing. Yeah. For what it's Yes. So I, I agree. I think that I do think that there are observers that perhaps they are actually 
they're either observing from a distance or they're actually inhabitants here on Earth that have been here long before humanity and they're always mm-hmm. watching on what we're doing. And perhaps they're inner earth dwellers. I don't know. I that's just a you know, that's just a guess. So they're residents basically, you know. Mm. Then I think that there are there are some that are a threat that they see the resources on the planet. I'm not just talking about minerals or water, mm. but the DNA. Human energy as well. Of all yeah, yeah. All life forms. Um, I mean, I've often thought, is there a, a cosmic black market out there that gathers DNA and then trades it on the, you know, out there in the market? Um, that's a possibility. And then there are those who probably sit on the fence and they're just opportunistic. Yes, absolutely. Yep. If it's if it's opportune to support these humans, we will. Yep. Or if it's opportune to utilize some of the things that they have, then we will. Yeah. Of course, you know, there are benefic types who are interested in humanity they may just be a scientist they may be researchers yeah. you know like we would do on other planets and they they don't intend to harm us they just happen to be here uh studying yeah uh, but you know maybe accidents happen sometimes i don't know those ones that you mentioned as opportunistics i i include those in the malevolent group mm. because they are by nature opportunistic so Mm. I include those in with them living up, but yes, you're right, pretty much there are four groups. That's the other thing I was going to say. I've found that people who report close encounters, and I always say it like that, I don't say abductees or yeah. contactees, I just say people who report close encounters because that's that's what they're doing. Yeah. That they are they're socially conscious. Mm. So they're probably the first to criticize their own government, their own society, you know, the social strata, the the things that are wrong on the planet, you know. In 1991, I think it was, the report came out, the Roper Report, and in there they found that experiencers were what they call the trendsetters, setters rather than the trend followers. And they're often the, they get involved in committees. They're the letter writers. They're the people who ring up on talkback shows and say, and give their opinion. Yeah. They're not so backward in being forward or or they grow into that person. They become quite outspoken. Yeah. And uh, and that's what we need. And maybe, you know, it's it's like changing society from the inside out. Mm. You know, bingo. Yeah. And and that sorry to interrupt, sure, but that brings me onto the subject of star seeds. Mm. Now I know for my person, I know that that I came here deliberately to do a work. The the group of beings that I work with, they have the prime directive. You cannot interfere, to use that Star Trek term, you cannot interfere with a, a developing society from the outside. But if you have people on the ground in those physical bodies, then you can affect change from the inside out. Mm. And that's what we do. And I know that I chose to come here to do this. Yeah. I've been consciously aware of that since I was a child. Yeah. And, and many who who report encounters are they may not remember that specifically but they all know that they have a work to do a very important work to do yes and they're peppered throughout society yes and that's that's how you change a civilization Mm, it's from the inside out through awareness through Mm. consciousness whether in different cultures different countries it doesn't matter 
Um, and I think that I've always found it really interesting that people who report close encounters change in a particular direction. Mm. So, for example, they might be like a, a delta of a river. There may be many tributaries coming together, but then they do. Yes. Uh, and then they form the river. So, you know, experiences change in that particular direction. And I've asked myself, why? Why don't they change in another way? Mm-hmm. Why don't they become, you know, council workers and, and fix roads or that sort of thing? And maybe some do, but why don't why is why aren't we seeing a big movement towards that? Like why is there a, this demographic? And it has purpose. It has purpose to 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 have a role in our civilization. Absolutely. Sure. One thing I've noticed over the past two years in my group is that I'm getting a lot of young mums with children at around the age two saying, My baby's seeing spirits and they're having this and they're having that. So many started happening like 30 or 40 within the space of a few weeks in my group, mums coming on desperate for help. They came to my group because a mum's group suggested that they come and talk to me. And these young children who are the latest generations of starseeds are being woken really early. When I say being woken, their spiritual abilities are being enhanced really early, whereas before they would have not started doing that until they were in their late teens or early 20s. But it's been consistent. And in fact, I've just today I've just had three mums on my group with exactly the same thing happening to their little two-year-olds. And it always starts between the ages of two and three. Mm, yeah. That's something that I also noticed too with people who reported close encounters that, again, like Kathleen Martin told you, you know, the first time is around three years of age. The next time can might be seven, but it's usually early teen years. And then it's later on in the late 20s or early 30s. And if they basically haven't got it by then, then I don't know what's happening. But what I mean is, you know, then they sort of have a, a major wake-up experience, you know, mm-hmm. and then they can look back and go, okay, this has happened in my life around these ages. And I find, found that was just, again, predictable. Yeah. So I'm not sure why three years old. I can certainly understand seven because we come to a, a an age of reason, I think, at seven years old where we have that fully self-awareness. Yes. Uh, and, and we're sort of formed. You know, mm. we're formed in our identity by, by age seven. And then in our early teen years, well, I think, uh, what was her name? Betty Luker, I think, or the, out of the Andreasen affair, Betty Andreasen. Right. I remember her like that. She had an experience at that age and she she, she was told, she was visited, sorry, she had a visitation and they said, oh, we're not coming for you yet, but we will come later. But they made themselves known to her. I think it was right. 18. You're not ready yet, but we'll be back, basically. But that's that's not uncommon. It's no. not common at all. And then they come back later, often when women can actually conceive mm. or have conceived. Mm. So, hmm. There's a few things going on there by different groups. Yeah, yes, because, of course, not everybody's experiences are the same. But I think for these little two-year-olds, I think what is happening is they're turning their switches on, their psychic switches on to prepare them. Mm. I find it so interesting 
that it's been the past couple of years that this has happened. Like I've had my group going for over three years now, and it's only in the and I and I can always tell when there's a shift in the general energy around the world because I get heaps of people joining at once, like a hundred people, two hundred people joining on one day, you know. So it's very interesting that they are doing this now and that they're waking these youngsters, preparing these youngsters so early, whereas before they had more time. And that just makes me, that sets my intuition off knowing that something major is going to happen very soon. Mm. I wonder if it's something to do with what's been happening on Earth with this pandemic you know because you mentioned the last three years yeah I do wonder about that yeah I'm sure it's all connected although my intuition about the pandemic is certainly it's very real but it was deliberately released Mm. and it was deliberately released as a means of control Mm. by the others who don't want to give up the control that they have over the planet at the Mm. moment it's this battle that's still going on well I do I guess it depends what's happening with those young children when they have, they're having, you know, because we're all switched on at certain times when our evolution requires it. Mm. So perhaps they'd be switched on early because as they get a little bit older into their teens and 20, and of course we'll have the corona teens. (laughs) Yes. Maybe they will those particular that particular awareness of those children may be very necessary yeah that's exactly what i'm thinking Mm -hmm. that's that's my thought Mm -hmm. too is they're turning them on so much younger because they need them to be ready at a specific stage and whether that's from five years time three years time two years time who knows four-year-olds can say the most amazing wise wonderful things yes yeah i also think that we should remember that we are connected to earth and earth is our own Mm. consciousness oh absolutely perhaps that that the switching on some of the switching on that we're seeing is actually cause of what's happening to earth and you know the it's like sympathetic resonance it's all interconnected it's all Mm. interconnected you can't disconnect this from the star people from the earth it's all interconnected mm. and it's all working towards the same goal ultimately yes 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 and it's a bit like you know there's a lot of talk about environmental concerns too which a lot of people who've had in, in, encounters are also highly concerned yes. about that yeah actually i would say that is their number one worry yes the environment mm. so it's like when there is a tree that is under stress it will drop its seeds right. to make sure that the species continues. Right. And I think sometimes that that might be what is going on as well. That Interesting. Humans, that these, these children are being activated because they are the seeds for what Earth needs in the future to look after the environment. Goosebumps. You know, whenever I get goosebumps, that's generally, for me, it's a sign I'm hearing a truth. Hmm. A spiritual truth. I've really enjoyed this conversation with you, and I know that I could probably ask you heaps more. Where can people contact you? Are you on social media? Absolutely. They can find me on the, my personal Facebook page. There's also the Strange Encounters Down Under Facebook page, UFO Research Queensland Facebook page. There's a few others, but I won't, even, I won't confuse people. <laughs> <laughs> and they can find me through UFO Research Queensland website as well. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, just, yep, shoot me a message, ask me questions. 
I love to talk to people about these subjects. You know, if anyone wants to have me speak to a group, whatever, I'd be more than happy to do so. Brilliant. That's awesome, Cheryl. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. It's been really interesting talking to you. Oh, thank, thank you, Marianne. It's been a pleasure. So that was my lovely guest, Cheryl Gottschall, from Across the Ditch in Aussie. I hope you all have enjoyed our conversation and perhaps it may have given you pause for thought. That's not a bad thing. Check out her pages, which are all linked on this episode's page of our website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. Next episode, I have a special guest who is involved in a famous, very, very famous military UFO incident in Bentwaters at the US military base in the UK while she was on active duty. Her story is very interesting. Be sure and subscribe to Walking the Shadowlands so you don't miss out. Today's bumper music was called Aliens. If you enjoy this podcast and have considered becoming a sponsor, now's a great time to join. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash mcc15 and sign up now. As a patron, you get early access to the podcast episodes and a special members-only page on the podcast website that has bits that end up on the digital cutting board and little extras like full, raw, unedited video conversations with guests, EVPs caught during the conversations and so much more. Also, you can download full written transcripts for each episode and you get my absolute appreciation and gratitude. Patreon.com forward slash MCC15 for just the cost of a cup of coffee a month. And so you don't miss out on an episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms, including iHeartRadio and Pandora as well. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words. Open Walking the Shadowlands and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. Check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, our Twitter feed, at Shadowlands10, TikTok under walking underscored the underscored shadowlands like and follow for teasers of our upcoming episodes if you don't have a smartphone then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com for those hearing impaired there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website so you don't miss out at all tell your friends tell your family Tell your workmates about our show, encourage them to listen, and to subscribe also. The more, the merrier. Thanks for listening to this episode. Kakite ano oyakoi. I'll see you again. Thanks for listening. 